Welcome to the Dick Schroeder Podcast. Dick draws his teaching from a deep well of love for the Bible and 50 years of strategic ministry among university students. Enjoy this episode and remember, your Father in Heaven loves you. Remember the first week we talked about knowing God and the importance of really getting to know Him. And I trust that each one of you are praying the prayers of Paul in Ephesians 1 that we might have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and that we might know the hope of His calling and that we, we might realize the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. That in every circumstance, everything that we go through in life, that we might know a little more of God, that God will make himself a little more clear. That's the whole goal. That's our whole reason for living. The Westminster Catechism says this. It says that the whole purpose of man is to know God and enjoy him forever. That's, that's the whole purpose of man is to know God and enjoy him forever. And then the next week we talked about the love of God. And remember, the love of God is defined as God always does things. Everything he does is done for the ultimate good of everybody, every moral being in the universe. God, everything he does everything out of love. And it's always for our good that God does anything. God is really incapable of doing selfish acts because he always acts in benevolent love. Everything that he does, even judgment, when he brings judgment, is still a, a, a mark of his love. And then last week we talked about the justice of God. And I just wanted to clarify this one point, that we are to, we are to be the defenders of justice in the earth for other people. But when it comes to our own justice, we are to trust God with that and allow him to vindicate our situation. We don't want to take up the justice call on our behalf, but we always want to pick it up on the behalf of others. But we need to accept circumstances with joy and and defer to God and say, Lord, I'll trust you in this situation. Remember last week we took a look at Joseph and we looked how he maintained a right attitude all through going to prison, being sold into a foreign country, and then uh, being sold as a slave and having to really serve as a slave for, for 17 years before fi God finally vindicated him and fulfilled those visions and dreams that he had received when he was a young, just a young boy and that he did indeed became the prime minister of Egypt and all of the people bowed down and worshipped him, including his family. And so because Joseph maintained a right attitude towards the Lord and he, he, he allowed God to vindicate his the injustice that men did him. God was faithful, and he did bring about justice in a miraculous way, rather unexpected way, because one moment he was in prison, the next moment he became prime minister, you know, from rags to riches in a few minutes was his story. But it was at the promotion of God. And boy, God knows how to exalt you. God knows how to take you from the prison and put you as prime minister. The Lord can do things like that, but we have to trust him for his time in that. Another aspect of God's justice is found in Galatians 6, 7, which is the principle of the law of the harvest. And this is Galatians 6, 7 says this. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that also will he reap. And, and what, what, if I could paraphrase this verse, it says that you don't pull any fast ones off on God because whatever you sow, whatever actions you you sow into the ground, you're going to reap that back as a harvest. And so there, there's both a positive and a negative aspect to this. The negative is that 
if you sin, you're going to reap the consequences. You know, it's like you've perhaps have heard this argument. Well, I am going to go sin and then God, I'll ask God to forgive me and, and he will. Now that's true, isn't it? You can go and sin and, and ask God to forgive you. And yes, he will. But what that are, what people that say that fail to realize is that there's a reaping for what you've sown. It's like you can throw a baseball bat or throw a baseball through my window here and you can come up and say, wow, Dick, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And I can say, yes, I forgive you. But that doesn't change the fact that the window's broken. It needs to be repaired. And there's always a corresponding penalty that we reap upon ourselves when we sin. And so you don't pull any fast ones off on God. God is not mocked. He's No one makes fun of him. And when a man sins, he reaps the, the curse of that sin. And that's true for Christians and non-Christians alike. And so we, 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 Paul exhorts us, don't be deceived. Don't fool yourself. When a man sins, he's going to reap the effect. Yes, he can be forgiven, but his life is still going to be damaged. And it's only by God's mercy that we're going to talk about tonight that his life can be repaired and put back together. The positive aspect of that verse is that when you sow positive things, then you're going to reap positive things. It's like, you know what a boomerang is? You know, you throw a boomerang into the air and it circles back and then hits you on the back of the head. And that's, and that's, there's a universal law. Whatever you throw out to other people, that's what's going to come back to you. So if you sow love, if you treat other people with love, what are you going to get back? You're going to get love back. If you sow mercy, you're going to get mercy back. You know, if you pick hitchhikers up on the road, someday when you're in need and need a ride, you're going to be taken care of. That's a universal law that, that works in God's creation. And so the positive aspect is that when we do things in the name of the Lord for people, God is going to reward us, not only in this life, but we will be rewarded in this life with, with good things and with, with uh, kind of like what, well, we'll be rewarded with what we've given out, but also in the eternal sense, we'll be eternally rewarded for that which we have done. Kind of neat to think that on the on the judgment day, there's going to be a lot of great rewards. We always think of people like Billy Graham. Wow, he's really going to get a big reward, you know, because we all know the the great things that he's he's done for many many years. And God will indeed reward him, and his reward indeed will be great. But there's going to be a lot of people that are going to get rewards that have done things in obscurity. People that have done little acts of kindness that no one has noticed except God himself. And on that day, those people are going to be amply rewarded. And I think we're probably going to be surprised. You know, all the superstars, all the people that we all know and think, well, you know, they really have a big reward. They may not get the biggest rewards in heaven. It's probably going to be the little cups of water given in the name of the Lord, the little acts of kindness that God is going to openly reward on that day. And so that's a cause for rejoicing for us. And it's a it's a real motivation for us to be be encouraged to press on to do good works in the name of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15:58 says this. It says be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that whatever work you do is never done in vain. In other words, when you do something for the Lord, it's never done in vain. It's never just kind of lost down the drain, but God's taking note of that. And one day we are going to be more than amply rewarded for, for our work that we do in his name. Romans 8.29, it says that whom God foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of Jesus. And remember, that's the purpose of God in your life, is that he wants to make you like Jesus. See, God wants to make you 
like Jesus in your own, in consistent with your own personality and who you are, but he wants you to be a reflection of his son, Jesus. So the practical application of the love of God, as we learn about God's love, it's practically applied in that we love our fellow man. See, it's worked out in a practical way in our lives. The justice of God, we are going to find ourselves being fair and equitable equitable with people as we realize God's justice and, and how he is just to us. It'll be worked out in a practical way in our lives and, and some of the practical things we talked about last week. Okay, tonight we're going to begin with the mercy of God. The mercy of God. At the beginning, at the top of your notes, I've, I've made a few notes here so you can get some of the longer paragraphs and things that I'm going to be quoting tonight. It says this, as, as, God, as judgment is God's justice confronting moral inequity, so is mercy the goodness of God confronting human suffering and guilt. Judgment is God's justice confronting moral inequity, and mercy is the goodness of God confronting human suffering and guilt. I want to define two words, mercy and grace. Mercy is defined as, is not getting what we justly deserve. Mercy is not getting that which we justly deserve. And grace is just the opposite of that. It's kind of like the other side of the coin. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Let's go back to mercy. It's not getting what we justly deserve. I want you to think about tonight, what do you deserve tonight? What do you deserve from the Lord tonight? And if we ponder that question very long, we come to the startling realization that all of us deserve judgment. All of us deserve hell. We don't deserve any of the goodness that God has given us because we've all rebelled against him. We've all blown our, our, our chance to be in God's family, as it were. And it's only by God's mercy that we're saved. It's by his loving kindness and it's his great heart of love that we've been saved and brought into a relationship with him. An example of mercy might be might go like this. Say you're driving along and you're uh, you buzz through a school zone about 35 miles an hour and you see this little red light and and he pulls you over and the policeman asks for your driver's license and you're going, "Oh no." And you just realize that I blew it. I was going 35 through a 15 mile an hour zone which ought to be worth about 50 buck fine. So the officer takes your driver's license, he asks you a few questions and he says, I'm just going to give you a warning this time. I want you to slow down because there's kids in this area and you might end up hurting one of them. And so he gives you a warning and lets you go. What did you receive? You had received mercy, didn't you? You didn't get what you deserved. You deserved a $50 fine. But because of the officer having mercy, he didn't give you what you deserved. Now what grace is, grace is getting what we don't deserve. And this would be like winning a contest. Or winning something, you know. And uh, I remember when I was a little kid, this I must have been about three years old, I won a cake at the grocery store that must have been about this big, you know. About, I mean, it was about a, a square yard. It was a huge Valentine's cake. I didn't do anything to deserve it. My name just happened to be picked out of the basket, and I won a big cake. So that's grace. See, I, I didn't deserve it. I didn't do anything. I didn't earn it. It was just the the goodness of the store that chose to to gave it to give it to whoever's name came out of the basket. I was in Baskin Robbins out here when it first opened last last spring, and uh, 
we walked in there and and this guy says, "Oh, you're some of our first customers. Why don't you pull a number out of this out of this bucket?" So we did. We pulled this number out of the bucket. And each one of us did it. It was my wife and I and, and my my sister and her husband. So we each got a number. And as it turned out, my brother-in-law won a, a free gallon of ice cream and Joy won a Sunday and I got a triple decker and my sister got something else and so we went, "All right. We really cleaned up." And just after we got in there, the place was flooded with people and, and you know they ran out of numbers right after that and so we really cleaned up on the ice cream for free at Baskin Robbins that day and we didn't deserve it it was just a it was just grace you know it was getting something we didn't deserve and so those these two concepts are are, are really tied together mercy is not getting is not getting what we do deserve which is punishment and and, and estrangement grace is is getting things that we don't deserve now, God sacrifices his welfare and just due to grant others his storehouse of blessing. God sacrifices his welfare and just due to grant others his storehouse of blessing. And what, what I mean by this is that if God was strictly just with us, where would we all be? We'd all be in hell, wouldn't we? Did God have to redeem man? Nothing required man, God to do that. He established a, a place of harmony and, and perfection in the Garden of Eden. He told man, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eat only from the tree of life, and then you can eat of all the rest of the trees in the earth. And there was no reason why God would have had to redeem man. He didn't. It was not required of him. And we would all been in hell, and everyone would have had to admit God, you're absolutely fair in what, what you did because we deserve, we're, we get, we're getting what we deserve. We're all criminals on death row. But God has chosen to show mercy and he didn't have to send his own son in one sense. The, his love constrained him though to do so. And so God has sacrificed his happiness and, and tranquility in heaven in order to endure with Patience and loving kindness, the rebellion of mankind. Do you understand that God has been hurt and grieved by the rebellion of man since the beginning of time? God has been deeply hurt and wounded by that. And he, yet he endures that because his love constrains him to still show mercy to us. So see, it's cost God something to show mercy. It's not something that he's like a robot in the sky and, and he just has to do that because he's God. He didn't have to do it. In his justice, he could have condemned us all to hell, and he could have said, away all of you into the bottomless pit, and I'm never going to see you again. And no one could have said, God, you're unjust. But his overwhelming mercy and love required him to send a redeemer and to send his own son to die for us. And that's a beautiful thing to realize that, that God chose to embrace us and to to deal with us and to work with us in order to win us back to himself. Let me give you three facts of God's mercy. Let me give you three facts of God's mercy. Number one, God's mercy is infinite and inexhaustible. God's mercy is infinite and inexhaustible. Isn't that good news? That means you can't wear it out. Sometimes I feel like I wear God's mercy out. How many of you have worn someone's patience pretty thin? You know, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> maybe when you were little, you tried your dad's or your mother's patience in a certain way. But God's patience does not grow thin because it's infinite and inexhaustible. 
In Genesis chapter 5, there's a really interesting analogy here. In Genesis chapter 5, we read about a man named Enoch. Does anybody remember who Enoch was? Remember what happened to Enoch? Enoch had his own personal rapture. Here, here we'll read about it. Genesis 5, 21 through 24. It says, And Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Now, who is Methuselah? Remember who he is? He's the oldest man that's ever, that ever lived, according to Scripture. He's the oldest man. Remember how old he lived? 969 years. Yeah, 969. Now, how would you like to live that long? Imagine that's almost 10 lifetimes, at least uh, you know, the, as far as how many, pe- how many years people live today. Okay, anyway, Enoch became the father of Methuselah. And then in verse 22 it says, Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And <coughs> excuse me. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And so Enoch had his own personal rapture, and God was so pleased with him, just one day he just got... He just got sucked right up to heaven when <laughs> he was gone. And he, so and he, was, he was not? And he was, yeah, he was taken up. He was taken up. He had his own personal resurrection because God was so pleased with his life. Okay. And then in verse 27 of Genesis 5, it says that, So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Now Enoch became the great-great-grandfather of Noah. And so Noah is, is one of his descendants. But it's really interesting. The, the name Methuselah means, in the year that I die, the flood comes. That's what his name means. In the year that I die, the flood comes. So God was prophesying something through, through this man's name. And what this says to me is that the man who, whose name was, in the year that I die, the flood comes, his, he is the man that lived the longest, which shows, it to me, shows the mercy of God. And see, God, God was extending that time of judgment as long as he possibly could, offering people another chance to repent and turn back to him. And see, God was not willing to, to bring swift judgment, but he delayed his judgment as long as he could, and that shows the mercy of God. See, God's not willing that any should suffer or that any should perish, but he wants everyone to come to know him. So God delays his judgment until, until, you know, until he absolutely is constrained by his justice. And that's, isn't, that, isn't that an interesting insight into God's mercy? His mercy is infinite and inexhaustible. Number two, his mercy is new every morning. His mercy is new every morning, and that's Lamentations 3.23. We sing the song, they are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. We sing that in a chorus. And God's mercy, it's new every morning. It's renewed. So if you think you wore it thin yesterday, well, it's brand new today. God's mercy. And then number three, his mercy is everlasting. Psalms 100 verse 5 says his mercy is everlasting. So we'll never run short on God's mercy. He always will be merciful. So we could say forever God's mercy stands as an overwhelming immensity of divine pity and compassion. God's mercy stands as a boundless, overwhelming immensity of divine pity and compassion. That's a quote from A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy. So this is the kind of God that we have. This is the kind of God that we serve. Psalm 78, verses 34 
through 39. Psalm 78, 34 through 39. When he killed them, then they sought him and returned and searched diligently for God. They remembered that God was their rock and the most high God, their redeemer. But they deceived him with their mouth and they lied to him with their tongue. For their heart was not steadfast towards him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. But he, being being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. And he often restrained his anger and did not arouse all of his wrath. Thus he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. And, and so the scripture says there's many times when God would, would be justified in righteous anger and getting angry and bringing judgment. And yet he restrains his anger because he desires to be merciful to us. He desires to be merciful. Micah 7, verses 18 through 20. Micah 7, verses 18 through 20. The scripture says that God delights in showing mercy. God doesn't do it just out of obligation, but he really gets off on showing mercy. He delights in showing mercy. How many of you delight in showing mercy? How many of you find it your greatest joy to forgive other people? And someone owes you $5 and you with joy say, you don't owe me $5 anymore. I forgive you. Do you delight in showing mercy? God does. That's just the kind of being that he is. And of course, mercy is ultimately shown in Jesus. And especially in his last words on the cross, when he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. That is the ultimate expression of mercy to us. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Jesus, if it would have been us up there, we would have been screaming, get them, God, wouldn't we? We'd have been saying, boy, I'm going to get even with you. You know, there's a bumper sticker, and you have to excuse the language on this, but it says, Jesus Christ is coming soon, and boy, is he pissed. Have you seen that? You see that once in a while. That's totally void of the mercy of God. See, Jesus isn't, you know, he's not, he's not pissed. He's, he's desiring to show mercy. He's grieved and he's heartbroken that men will not serve him. But he's not, you know, vindictive and, and just saying, boy, wait till I get a hold of you guys. In fact, you know, one time I counseled this girl who had been raised in the Catholic Church. And do, I don't know how she picked this idea, but she thought that because Jesus in the Catholic Church still is on the cross, she thought that, that our sin made Jesus go to the cross, and boy, was he mad. And, and, and her idea was that, boy, when Jesus gets a hold of me, he's going he's gonna to get me for all I'm worth because I made him go to the cross. And boy, when he gets his hands on me, there's going to be hell to pay. And that was her concept of God. She didn't realize that Jesus willingly went and laid his life down for us as a substitute and a sacrifice for our sin. When I became a Christian back in 73, God's forgiveness was such an, uh, a, a beautiful revelation to me. And it was just like, uh, you know, a knapsack was taken off my back of, of burdens and guilt and stuff. And boy, God was just made it so clear to me that I was forgiven and that everything in the past was, uh, was washed away and it wasn't, it wasn't going to be remembered anymore. What a beautiful understanding that was. And that really freed me to begin changing. And uh, if someone asked me the question, do you need mercy? I always say yes. <laughs> do you need mercy tonight? Yes, yes, we need mercy. That reminds me of a story. This lady went in to get her portrait taken. 
at the photographer's shop and she came back and and uh, she was looking at the proofs and she said, boy, these pictures don't do me justice. And, and the, the man retorted and he said, lady, you don't need justice. What you need is mercy. <laughs> so that's what we need. We need mercy. Paul gives an interesting testimony of God's mercy in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. Paul, the, the great apostle of the New Testament, gives his own personal testimony with regard to God's mercy. 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. And yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. And here Paul calls himself, and I can't think the King James Version says that he is the chief of sinners. And see, Paul didn't call himself the righteous, self, self-cleansed man, but he called himself the apostle of God because of what Jesus had done. And he said, it's by the mercy of God that I am what I am, not anything due to my own righteousness and my own works, but it's totally by God's mercy. And he called himself the chief of sinners. He viewed himself as the greatest sinner of all time. In verse 16, yet for this reason, I found mercy in order that in me as the foremost sinner, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And so Paul says, if I, being the chiefest sinner, was shown mercy and became an apostle worthy to declare the good news of Christ, how much more will God be merciful to you and transform your life into something beautiful? And it's by God's mercy, it's His unmerited favor, it's His richness, not our own, that we're receiving. Then Paul has a little hallelujah breakdown. He says, now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He gets so excited, he amens his own sermon. Because he's reveling in the mercy of God, that Paul is who he was because of God's mercy, because of God's desire to, to not give us what we justly deserve. In Exodus chapter 25, we get a picture of the, the Old Testament church. And there was a deal called the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a portable tent, a very elaborate tent. And it's all described in the book of Exodus here. And they, they carried that around in the wilderness. And that's where God would meet with them. And God, remember, he manifested himself by a pillar, a fire by day, by, by night, and a cloud by day. He was a heater during the night and an air conditioner during the day out in the hot sun. And wherever the cloud and the pillar of fire moved, there Israel followed that and they, they stayed with God. And God manifested his very presence in the, in the, amongst the nation of Israel by this cloud and this, this pillar of fire. And Moses would go into the tabernacle and he would meet in the Holy of Holies, the holiest part of the, this, this tent. And he would meet there. And, and God would meet with Moses and he would commune with man over a place on the Ark of the Covenant. And the place where Moses would meet would be on the, a place called the mercy seat. 
And in Exodus 22, Exodus 25, 17 through 22, we find the mercy seat. And it says, and you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. And you shall make two cherubim. You remember what cherubim are? Those are angels. You shall make two angels of gold, make them of of hammered work and at the two edges of the mercy seat and make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other. You shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. And the cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are are to be turned toward the mercy seat. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I shall give to you. And there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. And so even in the Old Testament, God was speaking in in, in, in this typology. He was speaking that the way that God would meet with men would be through the way of mercy. See, we don't come to God on our good works, do we? We don't come to God because we're good enough, but we come to God because of his mercy. And every time that the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he was to pour the blood of the lamb upon the mercy seat. And it was on the basis of the shed blood of the lamb that we could commune with God and that we were able to come into his presence once again. And of course, the blood of the lamb was speaking in reference to what Jesus would do several thousand years later when Jesus would come into human history and Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice. That's why we don't have to offer animals anymore. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. That was Exodus 25, 17 through 22. Therefore, you always need to remember that the mercy of God is not a cheap mercy, but it's a very costly mercy because it costs God his own son. I want to read you a a quote here from A.W. Tozer's book. This is from page 96. And it says, When through the blood of the everlasting covenant, we, the children of shadows, reach at last our home in the light, we shall have a thousand strings to our harps. But the the sweetest one may well be the one tuned to sound forth most perfectly the mercy of God. For what right will we have to be there? Did we not by our own sins partake in that unholy rebellion which rashly sought to dethrone the glorious king of creation? And did we not in times past walk according to the course of this world, according to the evil prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience? And did we not all once live in the lusts of our flesh? And we were when we were not by nature the ch- and were we not by nature the children of wrath even as others but we who were one time enemies and alienated in our minds through wicked works shall then see god face to face and his name shall be in our foreheads we who earned banishment shall enjoy communion we who deserve the pains of hell shall know the bliss of heaven and all through the tender mercy of our god whereby the day spring from on high has visited us. And so all throughout eternity, we'll thank Jesus that we're there because of God's mercy. We're not there because of our own merit. We're there because of the goodness of God. David sang this in Psalms 89.1. He says, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever, and with my mouth will I make known God, thy faithfulness. 
I want to look at some examples of God's mercy. And I, I want you to just listen to this. I'm going to read a par- portion of, cha- of Scripture from Nehemiah chapter 9. I'm going to read it from the New International Version. I want you to, to just to listen to the, to the sense of God's heart as this, as this chapter in Nehemiah reiterates God's mercy. It says, You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You set miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh and against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire, to give them light on the way that they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, decrees and commandments that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commandments, decrees and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land, which you had sworn with uplifted hands to give them. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember your miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked in their rebellion and appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you out from Egypt, or when they committed the awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine their the way on which they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths. You gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor their feet become swollen. Now, did they deserve that? No, they were a stubborn bunch of people. They refused to believe God, and yet God was merciful to them. He took care of them, even in their rebellion. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They overtook the country of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, or of Og, king of Bashan. You made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky. You brought them into the land that, that you told their fathers to enter and to possess. Their sons went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You handled the Canaanites handed the Canaanites over to them, along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses and filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. And you would think that these people would just be so thankful to God for all that he'd done. But the scripture says, but they were disobedient rebel, and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. 
But when they oppressed you, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commandments. They sinned against your ordinances, by which, if a man lives, he, he will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly they, refu- they turned their backs on you and became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For so many years you were patient with them, and by your spirit you admonished them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention, so you handed them over to neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God." And you would have thought that God would have just about had enough of this and said, All right. Forget it. And when they start crying out because they're being oppressed by their enemy, you'd think God would have said, forget it, you bunch of rebels. But see, God's not like that. He's rich in mercy. And he delights in, de- in giving us what we don't deserve. That's just the kind of God that we serve. And we need, to, we need to recognize the depth of God's mercy. Here's another example of God's mercy. This is found in Matthew 27, 19. This concerns Pilate when he was trying Jesus before the Jewish priests and before the people. It says, while Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. And here Pilate, who who is given the authority over, over you know, the affairs of Jerusalem, and, and indeed he had authority over Jesus because God had given him that authority. And what does God do? God shows his mercy to Pilate by warning his wife in a dream. And here in the middle of the proceedings, a note is sent to him and his wife says, don't have anything to do. He's a righteous man. And God, see, that's God's mercy to Pilate. Pilate could have freed Jesus but he he yielded to the pressure of the chief priests and handed him over to be crucified. And see, that was God's mercy to Pilate. God was giving him a chance to to not do wrong, but he chose to go ahead and to do it anyway. That's the kind of God that we serve, a God who's rich in mercy. Now let's look at the conditions that need to be met before mercy can be shown. It's important you understand this concept. If we have absolute justice, then we have the concept that we talked about last week, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And if, if you have a, a system under which you have only justice, then you have what we would call the hanging judge. That's the judge that hangs everybody. There's no room for any mercy and forgiveness and pardon. But simply, if you broke the law, then you pay. There's, you know, at, that would be strict justice. On the other hand, if we begin to give mercy to everyone and we begin to pardon everyone, what does that do to the law? It it voids the law, doesn't it? And then pretty soon everybody's out committing crimes because there's no penalty to doing it. The the law has merely become advice because there's no consequences. And, And that's largely why crime has increased today, isn't it? Is that we don't punish criminals. Very few criminals get actually punished for their crime. Therefore, crime pays because nine times out of 10, you won't get caught for it. See, because our system has wandered from the concept of justice and consequences for action. 
Now, God, this would be the loose judge, the judge that lets everybody off, you know, that doesn't discipline anyone for anything. And what that does is that it, it, it promotes crime in a society. Now, God grants mercy and pardon as long as righteousness is not sacrificed. That is the condition that God sets down. God grants mercy and pardon as long as righteousness is not sacrificed. And I'll go on to explain what that means. God will pardon only when it's wise to do so. See, God will pardon only when it's wise to do so. I, I got a paragraph on your notes there. Tracy, you might want to grab a you can grab the set of notes from the table there. I want to read a paragraph to you. The condition for mercy to be shown. God makes the choice to live in love, to live lovingly in a state of voluntary goodwill, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love suffers long and is kind. This is the opposite of vindictive justice towards those who have injured us. You know what vindictive justice is? It's that I'm going to get even with you. You hurt me. I am going to hurt you. I am going to make you pay for how you've hurt me. That's what vindictive justice would be. The loving disposition of the Godhead has completely overcome all feelings of vindictive justice, which man's rebellion and persistence in wickedness has caused to arise in God. Now, instead of this insistence on strict justice, mercy and forgiveness is offered upon certain necessary conditions which make happy reconciliation possible. So God, rather than making people pay for their sin, that's not, not, the, that's not the, how God operates, but God is willing to forgive and to pardon when certain conditions are met so that happy reconciliation is possible. And, and I'll show you what those conditions are. There's a story that, um, this is an actual story here from history. There's a story of a, a Greek king. This was in the area of Greece, and it is this was um, a, a, cream, a, a king, a cream, a king named King Zeleucus, and this this was sometime about a thousand years ago. And King Zeleucus had a small kingdom, but his kingdom was plagued with stealing and pilfering. There was a lot of stealing and pilfering going on. And him being a wise king and wanting the best for his country, he passed a new law and he made an edict that all stealing would be punished by losing your sight. Your eyes would be poked out with a hot iron. Of course, after the decree was, was issued in the land, stealing stopped because no one wanted to get their eyes poked out. And so the land was cleared up and stealing stopped in the land and, the, and society was changed. But one day... His son was caught stealing. His own son was caught stealing. And everyone said, what is the king going to do? Here his own son has been caught stealing. Is he, is he still going to, to execute the letter of the law? Or is he going to, to, to do something else? Really, he had two choices. He could pardon his son, couldn't he? Because he was his son. Because he was the king, he could do that. But... What would happen if he pardoned his son, then he wouldn't really be a just king, would he? But he would be showing favorites, and they, people would say, well, yeah, he's the king's son, therefore he can get away with it. And be, remember, we talked last week that God is impartial, and God will not pardon anyone just because he likes you. God always acts in fairness. And so the king could not allow his son to go unpunished, because the honor of the law would be at question. See, the law against stealing was a good law, and the honor of the law had to be upheld. 
But if he was just to punish his son, then that would leave no room for mercy. And how could the king show that he wanted to pardon and that he wanted to show mercy in some way? And so the, 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 the public trial came, the, the son was found guilty, and he was sentenced to having both of his eyes poked out. And the king decreed that his eye, that justice had to prevail and that both eyes had to be poked out. And uh, the executioner took the hot poker and poked one eye out of his son. And as he was going to poke the other eye out, the king came off his throne and he took the punishment and he had one of his eyes poked out so that he became the substitute and he took part of the punishment upon himself so that both justice was executed and mercy was shown. And so both justice and mercy were able to be meted out that day. And what do you think the people would think as they saw the one, their one-eyed king, as, as they saw him who had been willing to take upon himself? And the king, see, wasn't guilty. See, the king hadn't done anything wrong. But he was willing to identify with his son, and he took upon himself part of the punishment that his son had wrongfully done. And I think looking at the... The, the sight of the one-eyed king was a far greater deterrent to crime and to stealing than a totally blind son. And that's what see, God is. See, God is the wounded healer. He is the one who has taken upon himself the punishment for our sin. And he is the one who has taken our sin upon himself. He who knew no sin, he, Jesus, who deserved not, no sin at all, he took upon himself the punishment for sin. Now if if we're going to if we're going to have a proper if God's going to have a a, a, a proper working of his kingdom, there are, are four principles that need to be satisfied and this is what I call the the four principles of the atonement. The atonement is the work that Jesus did on the cross. There's four things that have to be preserved in God's moral government. The first thing that needs to be preserved is that the honor and the value of the law must be upheld because truth is eternally important. See, God's law is based on truth, and truth is, is as old as God is, and God's eternally old. He's never, he has no beginning. He's from everlasting to everlasting. Therefore, the honor of truth must be upheld. And, and because truth is such a valuable commodity in the universe, it, there needs to be consequences for breaking it. See, there needs to be consequences for breaking it. That's why when God spoke to Adam and Eve, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, surely in that day you will die. There was consequences. God set down his law. Back then it was real simple. Just don't eat of this one tree. You could eat all the other trees, but don't eat of this one tree. And it was because God had said it. God had set down his law. And we would show our love for him, and we would prove our trust for him by obeying that law. And that was simply not eating of the tree that God forbid. So that was the original situation that man was, was born into. And there was consequences for breaking it. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating of the tree that he said, don't eat out of, there was consequences. There was, you know, man disobeyed, the fall took place. There was consequences. And there's always consequences to sin. And the law 
God's law is such an honorable and and it's a it's a high and a lofty principle. It's the eternal principle of truth. Therefore, the honor of the law must be preserved and upheld. The second thing that needs to happen is the welfare of the people as a whole must be upheld. See, justice and the good of the whole needs to be considered. And if we allow, going back to King Zeleucus, if we allow a, a thief to go loose in society, that injures all of society, doesn't it? Because everyone begins getting ripped off and, 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 and hurt from this thief. Take, for example, a, a wanton murder, a terrorist. Can we justly allow a terrorist loose in our streets? No, because he'll just go wantonly kill everyone. That's not justice to the society. So out of justice for the society, we, we either, you know, either um, eliminate or, or kill, you know, so socially, we, we, you know, kill or execute those people or they're put away in an isolation ward called prison where they won't hurt the rest of the people in society. So that principle of, of justice. So the good of the whole needs to be as a factor in the atonement. Three is that law breaking and evil must be clearly shown for what they really are. The awfulness of sin and the awfulness of rebellion need to be shown for what they really are. And that's why the punishment was given by King Zeleucus that he who steals will have their eyes poked out. That's a terrible punishment. But the punishment fits the crime because stealing was a terrible, is a terrible crime. And so law-breaking and evil must be clearly shown for what they really are. And fourth, the wrongdoer must be inwardly changed to conform to truth and righteousness. The wrongdoer or the sinner must be inwardly changed to conform to truth and righteousness. See, it's not enough that there's an outward change, is there? It's not enough just to put the guy in prison. But what needs to happen in his heart? There needs to be an inward change where he willingly submits to the law of God. Imagine the king's son. Do you suppose the king's son is going to go out and steal again? I don't think so. I think he was forever changed and the, the, the indelible impression of his dad's eye being poked out with that hot iron would never leave his mind And he, as he remembered that his dad took part of the punishment for his own crime. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. See, Jesus laid his life down. He hung on the cross for us. And he laid his life down for us. And it's as we see Jesus the righteous suffering on our behalf that gives rise to our inward change, to our change of heart of wanting to live right and of wanting to follow the commandments of God and wanting to live in a way that's pleasing to Him. See, it's our inward response. And there must be an inward response. Without an inward response, then there can be no salvation. And to be a Christian at the bottom line is an inward change to want to live right before God. Salvation is not a technical thing where I give a mental assent to I believe the creed or I believe the doctrines of my church. It is an inward desire to live by the commandments of the Lord, to, do, to live by what is right. And we do that by God's grace and mercy. We can't do it on our own. But there has to be that inward, innate desire to live by what is right. And if that is not in our hearts, then I maintain that the person cannot be saved. And there's many, many people sitting in church today that are giving a mental assent to a creed or a doctrine, 
but have never settled the issue in their hearts that they want to live righteously before God. Their heart's desire isn't to please God, but they're just there doing a religious thing and living selfishly the rest of their lives, you know. And, and sometimes the way we so glibly give an altar call now, and all of you bow your heads and, you know, if you want to accept Jesus today and go to heaven, raise your hands. And, you know, who, was, who wouldn't accept an offer like that? But many times in evangelical Christianity, we don't stress the fact that there must be an inward change. There must be a desire to live for God. You must want to, to serve the Lord with all your heart and, and lay aside your own selfishness. You've got to be willing to do that. And so that, at the bottom line, I believe that's what salvation is. If we're not in, inwardly transformed, then I question whether there truly has been salvation taking place. Whether the person, you know, now again, I can't judge this in anybody and, and none of you can. This is something be, is between the person and God. We can't judge whether a person is, is um, really going with the Lord or not. But it seems to me that there needs to be that, at least that, that, that inward transformation, doesn't there? That's what the bottom line, that's what salvation is. It isn't just saying, yeah, I want to go to heaven. But it's, Lord, I'm willing to forsake my selfish way of life, and I'm willing to, to live your way. There's three questions that a parole board asks a prisoner. The first thing they ask, are you guilty? Are you guilty of the crime? And if his answer is, no, I was framed, what do they tell him to do? Back to your cell. Yeah. What is the proper response? Are you guilty? I was guilty. See, there needs to be a confession. Yes, I was guilty. I was wrong in what I did. That's the first step of coming to God, isn't it? Yes, Lord, I'm guilty. That's what confessing our sins is all about. And then the second thing, are you sorry? And if you go, no, he had it coming, then they'll say back to your cell because you're not ready. They can't afford to let you out in society because there's no regret for what you've done. See, there's no inward change. You haven't been changed yet. And then the third question they ask is, would you do it again? And if he said yes, if I had the chance, then of course they cannot pardon the man because he'll go out and do it again if he gets the chance. And it's the inward change that they're looking for. A man that's truly been changed in prison will go out and he will he will try not to do the same crime again. So he will try not to, to, because he's been changed inside, he'll try not to do the same thing that he's done before. But it's an inward change that's sought for, isn't it? You, you can look at Second Chronicles chapter 30. You can read that. I, I won't read the chapter tonight, but there's, this is a story of, of, of uh, when, as they were, they had been a long time since they had celebrated the Passover. And so they, the priests went out into the land. They proclaimed the time of the Passover. And there really weren't enough priests. And they really weren't able to, to celebrate the Passover in the way that the Lord prescribed. But they did it anyway. And God was pleased that because they all sought the Lord with a full heart. And, and they were inwardly changed. And they were appealing to God's mercy. And it said God healed them all. And God brought about a, a great celebration and great restoration. That's because the people were inwardly changed. And they came and they confessed their sin and say, they said, God, we've really blown it, but we want to do right in your eyes. And God responded to that. Even though they didn't do all the letter of the law right, but God looked at their hearts and he, in a beautiful way, responded. James 2.13, this, this is a tremendous verse. It says, For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment will be merciless 
to one who has shown no mercy. See, there's the boomerang. There's the law of harvest. Judgment will be merciless to him who has shown no mercy. So if you want to obtain mercy, what should you do? Show it. <laughs> you bet. You give it out and then you'll get it. And mercy triumphs over judgment. You know why mercy triumphs over judgment? It's because when you respond to truth and God's able to forgive and he's able to erase the sin of the past. See, God's able to restore. He's able to redeem that which was lost. See, he's able to reconcile, to salvage it, to bring it back to a place of usefulness. God wants all men to be saved. But will everyone be saved? Probably not. Not by the choice of God, but by the choice of man. And when mercy is despised, when we despise God's offer of mercy, then justice will come. And not vindictive justice, but simply people will get what they deserve. Remember the story we read at the end of the lesson last week about all the people standing on the plane and they came up with their case as to how God must bring judgment if he's going to judge. And, and it was the whole story of what Jesus came to do. And after they announced their sentence, they all were quiet because they realized that God had already served out his sentence in the person of his son, Jesus. And so if we despise God's mercy and if we re refuse his dealings of mercy and offers to come back to him, then justice must necessarily come and we will eternally get what we deserve. We'll eternally get what we deserve. In Revelations chapter 5, this really blew me away when I when I when the Lord opened my eyes to this chapter, because in the book of Revelation is there are lots of judgments and you see, you know, horrendous things happening on the earth, and and a lot of very severe judgments. But this really put put the whole the whole thing in the right light. And it's Revelation chapter five, and John says, "I saw in the middle, I saw in the right hand of Him who sat on the throne a book." written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now, this wasn't a book like we think of a book, but this was a scroll, like, a, you know, it was a rolled up paper, and they had seven seals around it. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Now, this was the book of judgments. This is the book that is unfolded in the book of Revelation. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. No one was found worthy, see, to open the book of judgments. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out unto all the earth. And he came and took it out of the right hand of him who sat upon the throne. And the only one worthy that was the one, the only one that was found worthy to open the book of judgments was the one who had given his life as a ransom for all mankind. And see, God, that shows how God's mercy, see, God has made it possible for everyone to be reconciled. And it's only the one who died for every man is the only one that's worthy to open the book of judgments. And it's only him that's worthy to sit upon the throne and to judge all men at the end of the age. You see the mercy of God in that? 
It's not just a God who's the big shot in the sky. I'm bigger than you sort of trip. And he's saying, well, I'm going to judge you all now. But it's the God who died for us all, who made the way of mercy back to himself. He is the one that's the only one that's worthy to judge. You should turn with me to Luke 15. This is a familiar story, story of the prodigal son. And I want to illustrate these four principles of the atonement. Luke chapter 15, we'll begin with verse 11. And he said, a certain man had two sons. Jesus is telling a parable here. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. Now, his dad was a righteous man, obviously worked hard in his life, and he had built up quite an estate. And he had promised his sons that he would give them an inheritance. And the father probably knew, well, he obviously knew his sons very very well. And he knew that his younger son was a rebel. He knew that he was wanting to go his own way. And probably with full knowledge of that, the father still gave all the wealth that he had worked so hard and so long to to lay up. He gave it to his son. And he said, son, I trust you and I release you to do what is best. And see, there comes a time when God releases us to do what we want to do. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Sometimes we go and demand from God, God, I want to get out of here. I'm going to go my own. I'm going to go do my own thing. And God lets us go. He doesn't say, no, you're not going out into the world or you're not going to go. But he says, okay, son, I'll let you go. And notice the father didn't withhold the wealth from the son, even though he probably knew he was going to go and squander it. But he loved his son enough and he respected him enough. And he was a man of his word that he gave his wealth even to his unfaithful son. And it says that not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to Las Vegas. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Is is that what your translation says? See, what did he do? He went to Las Vegas, spent all his money, had a wild time, blew all the money that his dad had earned all those years. And then it says, now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. Now, you have to know the Jewish culture that pigs were just no-no to the Jews. They were unclean animals. And here this guy was feeding them. And in fact, he was so hungry that he was eating the pig food, and no one was giving anything to him. And it was in this place of desperation that it says that his senses He finally came to his senses. And here's what he said. He said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Now see, there was a, there's some real, revelation that happened in this boy's heart because first of all he realized that he'd blown it that he was no longer worthy to even be called his dad's son and his dad would be totally justified in saying you're not my son anymore he realized that because of the awfulness of what he had done but he also realized that his dad was somewhat of a fair man that at least he could go back and and ask to be one of the hired men So he realized the father had at least that much goodness that he could probably go back, you know, and work in uh, work 
work there for his dad and, and just kind of be out of sight there. So he knew that he could go back to, to his father in that way. And he comes in humility. He comes with that inward change, doesn't he? When he was out there in the pigsty, he had a real inward change and he realized, I have been wrong in doing all the things that I've done and I have been wrong in living the way that I've been living. See, there was an inward change and he agreed that right is right and wrong is wrong and I've been wrong. See, he didn't come back saying, well, Pop, lost all the money, I need some more. See, he didn't come back with that arrogance saying that I deserve something from you, Dad. I'm your son and you owe me another share of the wealth. But he came in brokenness and humility, saying, I'm not even worthy to be called your son anymore. So he got up and he came to his father. And here's where we really see the picture of, of Father God. And he says, well, it says, well, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And that shows me that his father was looking every day for the day when his son would return. See, his, his father wasn't saying, that son of a gun. You wait till he gets back here. I'm going to make him eat mud before I accept him back. You know, that father, that wasn't his heart at all. But it's every day he was looking on the horizon, hoping that his son would return to him, say, hoping that his son would come back. And that's just the way God looks at us. God looks at every one of us, Christian and non-Christian, that we would come back to him. And when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion. That's mercy for him. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And you notice that the father didn't wait for the son to make the first move, but the father went out to him. Most of us would at least just sat there and wait for the son to come up and give his apology before we'd hugged him or anything. But what does the dad do? He runs out to meet him, runs out there and, and and meets him. And then the son, he says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. See, he confesses his sin. He says, Dad, I'm guilty. I've blown it. I don't deserve anything. He didn't even get chance to ask about being the one of the hired hands. And the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Now, what's that? That's mercy, isn't it? Did he deserve it? <laughs> he blew it, but it's the goodness of the father. See, put the best robe on, in, on him and put a ring on his hand and the sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they begin to be merry. Now that's the picture of God's mercy. How when we come to God and say, God, I have I have sinned against heaven in your sight. God is willing to put the best robe on us, the robe of righteousness. He puts the ring of authority, sandals on our feet, the gospel shoes of peace. And he says, you're my son. And, and, and it says that all of heaven has a hallelujah breakdown when one sinner repents. They're not, not up there, not up there going, well, yeah, it's about time you came back here, you punk you. But they're happy that we're back, see? See, God has no vindictive justice in his heart. It's all mercy and, and, and just he's happy that we're back. Now, look at the older son. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he received him back safe and sound. 
But when but he became angry and was not willing to go in. Now why was the younger bro- why was the older brother angry? Why was he angry? He was envious for one reason. Envious? Yeah. See the younger brother went out and did what he had always wanted to do but never did. See? And he was angry, he hated his younger brother, and he said that rascals back and he refused he didn't want to even go in and join him so he didn't want to have anything to do with him as we mentioned also that he killed the fatted calf which he'd never done for me yes we, he goes on here and he says goes, that yes and so and then notice his father came out and began entreating him again the father taking the initiative see the father going to the elder son but he answered and said to his father look For so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a commandment of yours, and yet you have never given me a kid that I might be merry with my friends. Notice the selfishness and how he was begrudgingly serving God. And I dare say that there's many Christians that are serving God with this frame of reference, that they don't understand the mercy of God because they think that they've been a pretty good boy all their lives, a pretty good girl, and they don't need any mercy. See, they're self-righteous in themselves. And instead of rejoicing when God shows mercy to someone, they get angry and they because they, they don't understand God's heart of mercy. But when this son of yours came back, notice he didn't say brother of mine. It was son of yours. He was totally disowning him. Who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And see, the older brother was so caught up in bitterness and, and resentment and unforgiveness that he, he didn't have a heart of mercy like his dad did. And he said to him, my child, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. And because he didn't have a relationship of love with his dad, he didn't realize that everything was his already. He could have had a fatted calf whenever he wanted, but his own resentment and unforgiveness held him away from the mercy, from the mercy of his father. And then verse 32, but we had to be merry and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. And there's no indication in the story here that the elder brother ever did go in and join the celebration, but that he persisted in his, his own unforgiveness. So the four principles that this parable illustrates, one, the father upheld the moral law. The father knew what was right and wrong. He was willing to pardon only when the son had learned his lesson. Number two, the son realized that his ways were wicked and he repented. Three, the father looked with mercy and compassion, not with vindictiveness or revenge. And number four, and here's really the the crux of, of this issue of mercy. The father could wisely forgive and restore his son without sacrificing righteousness because has, his son had learned his lesson. His son was inwardly conformed to truth and righteousness. Therefore, his dad could pardon him. And what kind of son do you think the younger son would be from there on? Probably a real faithful and a beautiful son, because he had, there had been an inward transformation taking place. The older son had never had that transformation, and therefore he was still caught up in his own resentment and bitterness. And then finally, our our final concluding comments, we want to look at Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. And this is our responsibility. This, This boils down to the practical application. 
The story goes like this. There was a man, a king, who was settling accounts with people. And he noticed that this one man owed him $10 million. So the king says, well, bring this guy in. So he brought him in, and he says, hey, you owe me $10 million. And and, and the guy says, "Um, I, I can't pay it. I don't have the money. And he says, well... You need to be sold into slavery, and your children, and your wife, and everything you have needs to be sold, and you work until the debt's paid off. And, of course, that was an unpayable debt. Ten million dollars is, you know, none of us can earn that amount of money in a lifetime. So it says that the, the, the servant fell on his face, and he asked the master to give him time, and he would pay back everything, which was not, I mean, he was exaggerating because he never could pay it, but at least he was asking for mercy that he might have more time to repay. And it says that his Lord was moved with compassion, and instead of just giving him more time, he forgave him the whole debt. And he left the presence of his master, a free man. He owed $10 million before, and now he leaves the presence of his master totally forgiven and a free man because he, 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 asked, he asked his master for mercy, for mercy. So the story goes on, and he says he met one of his fellow slaves, and he owed him a day's wage, $10. So he, he grabs his fellow slave and says, hey, you owe me $10, don't you? And the guy says, yeah, yeah, have mercy with me. and I get paid at the end of the week, and I'll take care of you then. And the guy says, I want it now. He says, well, just have mercy with me. Give me a little time, and I'll pay you at the end of the week. The guy was unwilling, and he threw his fellow slave into prison, debtor's prison, until he should repay all that was owed him. Well, the story gets back to the master, and the master was moved with anger. And he commanded demanded his servants to go out and find this guy. They brought him back in, and he said, you wicked slave, I forgave you a debt of $10 million. Could, should you not have forgiven your fellow slave the $10 debt that he owed? And because you are not willing to forgive your brother, I am going to hand you over to the torturers until all that you owe should be repaid. And now he's back in the position of having to pay back the $10 million debt, a debt that's impossible. And then the verse, verse 35 is the clincher, and it says, So shall my heavenly Father also do to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, all of us have laid up a $10 million debt of sin before God. We have all laid up an unpayable debt of sin, and we have asked God for mercy, and He has graciously forgiven us. But with that expression of mercy comes the responsibility to forgive our fellow men. And everything, you guys, that people would do to us is nickel and dime stuff compared to what God has been compared to what we have done to God. It doesn't matter what people have done with us. In the light of what we have done to Jesus and how we've rebelled against Him, it's nickel and dime stuff. And so we are constrained by the gospel to go and to show forgiveness to other people. We are constrained to show mercy and to forgive everyone who wrongs us. And if we refuse to forgive... Then God says he puts us on the torture rack and we'll, we'll not be released until we pay what is owed. And what that, what, that, what that means is that if we refuse to forgive, we will be tormented by our unforgiveness and by our bitterness and by our resentment. And we won't get freed from it until we forgive. It's like the older son in the last parable. He was tormented by his resentment of his younger brother. 
because he hated him. And he was never free to enjoy the relationship with his father because he was filled with resentment and bitterness. So the practical response, as we see how much God has forgiven us, then we are abundant and willing to forgive everyone who has hurt us. That's the practical outworking of that. I have a little checklist here at the bottom of the page. And this is a checklist that I want you to go through this week. This is a checklist concerning people from your past. And in response to the message tonight, I want you to make sure that you have forgiven everyone that has hurt you in your life. Now, it may, it may be a very deep thing or a very hurtful thing that someone did to you, but you need to see that in the light of your sin against God, it's nickel and dime stuff. You know, even if someone killed your father, even if someone ripped $10,000 off of you, it's still nickel and dime stuff compared to how we've hurt Jesus and how we've rebelled against him. And so when we need to see that our, that our forgiveness of our fellow man is just, it's a response to how much God has forgiven us for. Let's go through the checklist really briefly. Our parents, it's very important that you have Come to a place of forgiving your mother and dad for whatever they've done. I don't care what kind of mother. I don't care what kind of father. I don't care what they've done. You need to forgive them and honor them for being your parents. If not, you're never going to be settled in uh, and secure in who you are in God until you forgive your parents. Your family. Maybe there's been hurts from a, a sister or a brother or a cousin or you know, who knows all the things that go on in families. But if there's things that you're holding grudges towards, you need to forgive. Maybe there's been a divorce, you know, or some betrayal or something like that. There needs to be forgiveness extended to those people. Your friends. Maybe you had a friend that turned his back on you or rejected you. And there's still hurt there. There needs to be forgiveness for that. School teachers. Maybe a teacher didn't give you the grade that you deserved or a teacher made fun of you or embarrassed you when you were in the second grade and you were hurt and you're angry and resentful towards that person even now. Pastors, maybe a pastor failed you in some way and he wasn't the kind of pastor that you thought he should be and you have unforgiveness, you need to forgive him. Number six is the big one, romantic relationships. People that may have hurt us because we were in a romantic relationship and they left us or jilted us or betrayed us in some way. Perhaps there was sexual sin and always with sexual sin, with uh, you know adultery and all that, there's always betrayal that goes with that because God intended sex to take place in the context of committed marriage or committed covenant of marriage where there was no breaking apart. And when there's been illicit sex, there's always betrayal. There's always a sense of betrayal for both the, the man and the woman. And that, that is healed through forgiveness. Forgiving guys that took advantage of you or forgiving girls that hurt you, whatever is the case. Authorities, policemen, for example, policemen or politicians and people you just feel that have hurt you, you need to forgive them. Employers, <laughs> maybe the guy didn't pay you what you thought you were worth. Maybe he made you work too many hours. Maybe he didn't give you enough hours. Whatever. You need to forgive him. Maybe he swindled you out of something. Maybe you got taken in a business deal and you're, you're angry at your partner for running off with 
you know, all the all the spare parts or something. So like Bill Sheehan. Yeah, right. Exactly, Tom. You know what I mean. <laughs> Other races, maybe you're prejudiced against black people or Indians. Or maybe you don't like fat people or maybe you don't like skinny people. You know, whatever whatever division and distinction you're making needs to be forgiveness for that. And you need to forgive yourself. Thank God, how, how can I forgive myself for some of the rotten things that I've done? You need to do that. Jesus has forgiven you. And if Jesus has forgiven you and he's perfect, who are you not to forgive you and you're imperfect? You need to forgive yourself and accept God's grace to you. And then sometimes you need to forgive God because you feel he was responsible for your dad dying or your mother dying or your little baby brother getting run over by a car, some tragedy happening. And actually God's not at fault at all. But, and you need to exonerate God and say, God, I realize it wasn't your fault and I'm not holding that against you anymore. I want you to leave today or, or come to a place very soon where you can say that I don't have any grudges against anybody. That anybody you think of, all you think of is thoughts of blessing. Now, you may have some emotions to work through, and that's okay. But as long as you make the choice to forgive them and say, God, by your grace, I'm going to forgive them, then you'll be able to work through the feelings. Because forgiveness is basically a tearing up of a debt. When, when some, you haven't forgiven someone, you're basically saying to that person that you owe me something. And it's like you have a little bill here, and you say... Uh, you know, Rand, you owe me something, you know. You talk behind my back and you damage my reputation. You owe me something. You owe me an apology. You owe me something. So, you know, I have this little IOU in the back of my pocket and I pull it out every now and then. I think, Randy, he owes me that. And see that re- resentment? You just keep brewing it, keep stewing in your own juices, don't you? Because you, you think, son of, a, son of a gun, he owes me this. And, you know, that's what you do. See, that's what unforgiveness is. Forgiveness is saying, Yes, you hurt my reputation, you damaged me, you hurt me, but I'm tearing up the debt. You don't owe me anything anymore, and I'm, I'm canceling the debt. You're free. You're pardoned, just like Jesus has pardoned me. And that's what you do with every person that's hurt you. You tear up the debt. Now, I might not feel very good about Randy, and I, might, I still might have emotions that are kind of you know negative towards him, but as long as I affirm, Lord, I forgive Randy, and I start praying prayers of blessing, like, Lord, you bless Randy. Pray you'll just reveal your love to him, take care of him today. Then my emotions will get worked out, and I'll start having proper feelings towards him. That may take some time, especially when it's involved with your family. That can really take some time. But as long as you tear up the debt and, and you just remind yourself, no, I've per- tear- torn up the debt. I've forgiven him. It doesn't matter. I, I've pardoned him. They don't owe me anything anymore. Then you, you'll be free. Your emotional, your emotional state will change and you'll find God's freedom coming. But do that because that's the practical outworking of the mercy of God. Man, when I see how merciful God has been to me, it's really easy to forgive people that hurt you. Because you realize how much you've hurt God and how, how, much you, how many mistakes and failures you make. And you, you're just gracious towards other people. And you go, oh, brother, I forgive you because I know how much forgiveness I need. <laughs> Say, See, the person that's religious... In this sense, in in the sense of the older brother, he thinks he's okay, and he doesn't need forgiveness, and therefore he gets pharisaical and he judges people, and he's real critical with people, and he he's always saying, "Well, people should be better. They should live up to this standard. They shouldn't be the way they are." And they they get that that 
that, uh, that critical religious spirit that you see in so many people. And there's no mercy in their spirit. There's no mercy coming from their heart. And what they haven't seen, that they're really a sinner in God's sight. And we, all of us needs to have a revelation of that, that we are sinners. You know, if we think that somehow God got a good deal when he got us and, you know, I really didn't need very much forgiveness. You need a revelation from God of how we're going to talk about this next week in God's holiness. Because once we see God's holiness, we fall apart and we say, my goodness, God, you have been awfully merciful to me. And that's translated by being merciful to our fellow man, that we're rich in forgiveness, just like God has been rich in forgiveness towards us. So I want you to take this list home this week, and I want you to spend some time. Now, if you've, if you've done this before, and, and you're, you're really secure and assured that you've forgiven everybody in your past, then you don't need to do it again. But if you haven't done that, I want you to take some time to be alone with the Lord. And I just want you to go through your past and, and ask the Holy Spirit that He'd bring to mind anything that that you need to forgive and, and you go through that process. And even if you want to get together with a friend and just share them and just pray it through with them, that can really be helpful. And then have them pray with you. That can really help things too. And if there's some things that any of you need to work out and would like to do it with me, I'd be happy to sit down with you. Sometimes parental things can be really strong in our lives and really need a, a counselor or someone to help them through that. So if that's the case, be happy to get together with you. You just let me know. Thank you for listening to the Dick Schroeder Podcast. For more teaching and discipleship resources from Dick, visit fatherheartministries.net.